please join me in welcoming Dr. Freehoff. Thanks very much. Um, I'm a wanderer, so I apologize. I'll be wandering around most of the night. And because I have no monitor in front and I have no prepared words on my slide, every once in a while I might turn around to see what I'm supposed to be talking about. Now, I want to thank the city for inviting me out to chat tonight. And today I want to talk about something that I speak a lot about, and that is sort of the mythology of modern day dieting. Why is it that despite so many diet books. When I wrote my diet book, so there's one more. Um, when I wrote my diet book, there were over 10,000 diet books on the Amazon.com shelves. You'd think that after hundreds of years of writing, because it has been now nearly hundreds of years at least since the first diet book was published, that there would be something that sort of worked for everybody, and that we wouldn't be having this talk today. And I think that the reason why so many different diets, regardless of whether it's low-carb or low-fat, calorie-counting, it doesn't really matter what it is, there's been a lot of failures, and I think, in part, it's because how we as a society have approached weight management, and that's what I'll be talking with you tonight. And so, in terms of weight management, in terms of, just in general, what the attitude in society is regarding success, I think this sort of sums it up, right? So this is diet, this is weight management, this is about trying to ensure that you suffer sufficiently so as to succeed and that that suffering will make you stronger. Now, this is a cute graphic and this is a nice way to put this mentality. This lady is less nice. So this lady, for those who are not familiar, she is a trainer named Jillian Michaels, and she works on a television show called The Biggest Loser. I don't know her in person, so I have no idea what she's really like, but certainly she's incredibly loathsome on the television. And in terms of her attitude and her approach, I mean, this is that same slide, just not as cute as the mouse. The goal is that you've got to, in a sense, kill yourself push really hard beyond your limits. I mean, that is the biggest loser, to succeed. That's a problem. And so, in terms of this problem, the problem, in a sense, I talk about the seven deadly sins of diet. This is a picture um, of the original seven deadly sins. And the seven deadly sins of dieting, like these deadly sins, these are mortal sins, where if you commit one of these sins, then you're condemned to eternal hell, I would imagine. I'm not the most religious man, but I'm guessing that's where you go. Um, from a weight management perspective, the seven deadly sins are different, where if you endure one of these things, well, in a sense, I think people are condemned to struggle, potentially to fail with their weight management efforts. And the first one is hunger. You know, hunger is something that people have been taught is a good thing, right? That you are supposed to wait until you're hungry to eat. That is an appropriate thing to do. And that if you're not hungry while you're trying to manage your weight, you're doing something wrong. Hunger is part of doing it right. I don't think that's true. I don't know if you've ever gone to the supermarket hungry. Um, I've gone to the supermarket hungry. This isn't my aisle. My aisle is the 
chip aisle. But um, everybody has an aisle in the supermarket that speaks to them very differently when they're hungry than when they're not hungry. There's actually been studies on supermarket purchases showing that when people go hungry, they leave with more calories in their cart and crappier food. And it's not at all surprising because what happens when we're hungry is we eat all the things, right? This is an internet meme for all the people who like the internet. But we do. When we're hungry, we are not designed to, or we have not evolved to crave green leafy salads when we're hungry. When we're hungry, we crave the good stuff. We crave that aisle of Oreos. I crave the chip aisle. But this is a survival mechanism. It's only been a very short, you know, blink of time where we have had a glut of easily accessible calories. Up until extremely recently, calories were very hard to come by and very hard to get. And if you got hungry and there were excess calories in front of you, especially easily accessible calories like those that you would find in sugars and fats, well then your jobs, or your body's job is to eat as many of them as you possibly can. And so this hunger piece, the sin of getting hungry, well, it's what is considered a sin to many dieters, but I think if you let yourself live with hunger long term, that may be really problematic. Sacrifice is another one. You know, the no, no birthday cake for me thanks. I've worked with a lot of people over the course of the past decade. I have had people who've told me that it was their birthday and they did not have cake and that this was a good thing. Uh, that television show, The Biggest Loser, sadly, they had... So The Biggest Loser, there might be people who don't know. It's this spectacle. It's like the, the Roman Colosseum of 2014 where we are, as a public... Uh, able to look at the misfortune of these people who are suffering and enduring all of these hardships. And they sadly had kids on the show a couple of years ago. One of them was a teenage girl named Sunny. And she had her 17th birthday during the course of the airing of the show. And she had an article in Seventeen magazine, of course, talking about her birthday. And in the, the article, she had a picture in her hand of the tangerine that was the substitute for her birthday cake. I don't think tangerines are good birthday cakes. You know, I think that life includes things like birthday cakes. And as far as celebrating with food goes, first of all, I would challenge anybody to find me the celebration that does not include food in this day and age. Um, but it would seem that celebrations with food have a pretty long history. This is an archaeological dig um, on the, the Galilee River in the Middle East. And this dig is of a site that is supposed to be 10,500 years old, where a shaman had died. And the archaeologists, when they were excavating the site, found evidence of a massive feast. There was apparently 70 giant tortoise shells, there were the bones of three aurochs. An auroch is a, an extinct now form of uh, cattle. Uh, each auroch was supposedly able to deliver 600 pounds of food. Now this was a massive feast that's 10,500 years old. Celebrating with food is the human condition. And yet people on diets in many cases feel they are not allowed to anymore. They're not allowed to use food normally like everybody else. They're not allowed to use food to celebrate. That's a problem over time. Willpower is a pretty common one, too. 
right? So if I close my eyes and unpatch the cover, I can make it to the bedroom without hitting the chips. Willpower is what you're supposed to have so much of that, well, this, this should just be easy, right? Basically, got willpower. I wonder whether there's anything in a person who struggles with their weight's lives where they've spent more willpower on than weight management. And the thing about willpower, and the more medically term for willpower is resilience. There's been work on resilience, trying to figure out, well, how does resilience work? Do we have an unlimited supply? Is it reasonable to think that people could will themselves away from the table on a regular and ongoing basis. There's a study done by a guy named Roy Baumeister. I forget what university he's from. And he's sort of the guy who does a lot of the research on resilience. And it was a pretty simple study. He took a table. In the middle of the table, he put either a big bowl of freshly baked chocolate chip cookies or a big bowl of radishes. Then he brought people into the table, sat them down, and said, you're not allowed to take that. You've got to resist eating that. So they were forced, in a sense, to will themselves not to choose to have, in one circumstance, the cookies, in the other circumstance, the radishes. After a certain period of time, I think it was a half an hour of sitting there staring at the cookies and salivating, and staring at the radishes and not salivating. Um, he then took the food away, and he brought in a puzzle for everybody to solve. And what he didn't tell anybody was that the puzzle was not solvable. It was actually an impossible puzzle. You could not solve this puzzle. And then he tracked how long it took before people gave up trying. And what he found was the people who were resisting the cookie, they gave up much sooner. In a sense, they sort of used up their willpower resisting this cookie, and then when faced with the next thing that they needed willpower, well, they didn't have as much of it, so their pool of willpower had been depleted. And that's true for all of us. There's something called decision fatigue, which um, is now making the rounds, no pun intended, of a medical discussion where we talk about the fact that a recent study showed that doctors, family doctors, are more likely to prescribe unnecessary antibiotics in the afternoon than in the morning. The willpower to resist that easy prescription is gone by the end of the day, and we've all experienced that. We know that as the day goes by, it is more and more difficult to make the right decision, so to speak. And so it is a problem if we run out of willpower to require people to have lots and lots of willpower. Another study uh, by someone named Baba Shiv and something Fedorkin also looked at this concept of how much resilience or willpower do we have. They had a slightly different setup. So they had people who were asked to memorize either a seven-digit number or a two-digit number. And then they were sent down the hall, still remembering their number, where they were to report to the person down the hall what the number was. And when they got to that person, they were given a choice. They were given a choice between having a slice of chocolate cake, this is the middle of the day, like a random piece of chocolate cake, or some fruit salad. People who were trying to remember the seven-digit number were far more likely to choose the chocolate cake. So their willpower, in a sense, because they were busy, or their resilience, they were busy concentrating on not forgetting that number, 
Well, they didn't share their willpower very well. And as a consequence, when faced with this next decision, which is, should I eat healthfully or not, they were less likely to use the, or to make the choice that involved more concentration and more willpower. And so if we're relying on something that we run out of, that we don't share very well, in our current world, which I would argue, although is probably less stressful than when we didn't have antibiotics and other issues, certainly is more frenetic than it ever was. We are connected. I had to turn this off because otherwise when it buzzed, I know I'd be very distracted. Um, so it's on do not disturb. But we are constantly being bombarded. Our resilience, our pools of willpower are constantly being challenged in this current environment. Blind restriction is something that we think we need to practice as well where the only way to lose weight is to take this particular food group or this particular food completely out of my life. I'm not allowed to have chocolate in my life. But food is a comfort. So food's been a comfort for an awfully long time. This was the oldest uh, image of a cookbook I could find that was specific to comfort food. But we all know comfort food is real and it exists. What not everybody realizes is that comfort food has a physiologic impact inside of our bodies. That when we choose those foods that we find comforting, it actually lowers our body's cortisol levels, our stress hormones. And so people comfort with food because it works. And so again, this is a normal and regular and appropriate use for food that many people who are trying to manage their weight feel they are no longer entitled to. And so we didn't realize there was a prescription strength chocolate is what the caption of this says, but ultimately life has to include chocolate if you love chocolate. The likelihood of a person cutting something out of their lives forevermore that they love is low. And so that becomes problematic over time. Sweat is the next sin that people need to uh, think about. You have to sweat and sweat a lot, bonus points if you puke. And I'm not even joking about the puke piece. Um, this is a screen capture from that awful TV show, The Biggest Loser. And this is glorified on television, and I'm sure that, you know, it, 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 in a sense, of course, it's just to make good TV, but you've got to remember, this is what people are internalizing. This is the effort required. But does it really burn that many calories? So I know there's a few people in the audience who run marathons. Anybody have a guess as to how much or how many pounds worth of calories a person burns running a marathon? I'm trying to see over the lights. Is there any hands? Anybody want to shout out a number? Ten pounds. Ten pounds. I heard one number. Three pounds. Three quarters. Three quarters of a pound. That's pretty close. So it'd be three quarters to one pound, depending on the person. Certainly, the, the heavier a person is, they burn more calories moving um, because there's more weight to, to push and to move. But ultimately, it's about a pound. And so, given that every single pound of loss requires a literal marathon of effort, that's problematic from a long-term success perspective, especially since I'd be willing to wager there is nobody, nobody who has ever run a marathon who has not then rewarded their marathon with food, right? So, we, we reward exercise with food. We immediately eat back the calories that we consume exercising because we feel we deserve them, we feel we've earned them, or we are damn hungry because we actually ran a marathon. Um, but the fact of the matter is, and I'm going to get to some studies in a little bit, in the real world, exercise doesn't have the impact that would be fair. And so if a person is believing that they will manage their weight through puke-inducing amounts of exercise, 
they're often quite disappointed and then they should stop. I mean, the gyms are full in January and empty in March for a reason. People join to lose weight and quit when they don't. Which is a real shame because as far as determinants of health goes, I would argue that the, the single most important modifiable determinant of health is exercise. It just doesn't lead to massive weight loss. And so people start exercising, which is incredibly good for them, and then stop because they're not losing weight, which is a real shame. Perfection is another thing that I think people struggling with weight often will try to be. You know, you have to be perfectly perfect or else I'll never lose weight. And, you know, I'll start my diet tomorrow and no Monday because it makes more sense. This is not an uncommon thing. So in my practice and in my real life, I keep a food diary. I recommend people to keep food diaries. And I will regularly hear people tell me that the reason they didn't keep it is because they didn't start it in the morning. So they'll start again the next day. They'll start again the next day. We don't need to be perfect. I think this desire and this sort of drive towards perfection with healthy living is really crippling over time because it's an impossible goal. And if you set yourself up with an impossible goal and you never attain it, um, that can be disappointing at the point of a person stopping. And, you know, the best a person can do is what I talk about quite a lot, but in terms of perfection, what does perfection look like on an all-inclusive vacation? So it looks like often people who are struggling with weight management will do one of two things at this all-inclusive vacation. Either it'll be a carte blanche, whatever goes, goes, doesn't matter, it's one week, I'm on vacation, I don't have to do it now. Or it's a, I'll be strict when I'm there and cranky the whole time. Neither are pretty useful for the long term. Spend enough vacations being cranky, you're going to stop what you're doing. Um, spend enough vacations with a total carte blanche and the weight that's gained so quickly in that week or two can be sufficient to make a person feel discouraged enough to stop. This is a real person's weight loss. Um, this is somebody I've been seeing since 2008, and you can see it is anything but a straight line down. This person's lost actually 80 odd pounds uh, over the years. And even now, I mean, this is 2014, even now there's ups and downs and sideways and blips. But a lot of folks who are focused on perfection think it should be this straight line down. People waiting and hoping for those straight lines often get discouraged. This period of time here, between 2009 and literally, it's a full year where there's virtually no change in this person's weight. And there's stuff going on in this person's life, and you know, this person was persisting because you know, their job was to do their best, and their best at this time didn't lead to weight loss, but a lot of people give up here, which is a shame. Perfection's not a great goal. And denial, you know, nothing tastes as good as sin feels. I think it, was it Coco Chanel? Somebody famous said this once. Um, it's a ridiculous statement, of course. Uh, I think it speaks to the honeymoon period of a lot of programs. This, I had a honeymoon once. Um, we were a lot nicer to each other back then. I love my wife, we've been married for 12 years, but we were probably sweeter to one another at this honeymoon than we were than we are last night or today. Um, that's just real life. And it's real life for weight management programs as well. And if you want the penultimate or the ultimate, really, um, weight management program honeymoon where you can say, you know what, denial. I can deny my suffering because of my weight loss. Nothing tastes as good as thin feels. Well, there's this one. You know, this is a famous picture, right? You've seen this. This was Oprah when she lost weight on an all-liquid diet. She literally dragged out her wagon of fat. And, uh, and she was doing this on national television. 
certain of herself that this was going to stay on. In terms of how she got there, though, this was literally an all-liquid diet. There aren't very many people who want to live on an all-liquid diet forevermore. And whatever a person does to lose their weight, if they stop doing it, weight comes back. You know, so weight's a chronic thing. It's a chronic condition. A chronic condition, if you stop your treatment, the condition returns. So if you undertake a treatment that's huge degrees of suffering, well, you can get real excited while the scale's going down and you fit into the skinny jeans in this particular case, but ultimately, if you don't like your life while you're losing, the chances of you going back to the life you actually liked before you lost are pretty high. And so all of these things are sort of the sins of weight management, meaning that you're not supposed to not be hungry. You're not supposed to not exercise till you puke. You are supposed to be a perfectionist. But commit any of those things, and then things start going downhill. I think guilt is an exceedingly common emotion in a weight management program or weight management effort. It's probably the most common emotion. You know, guilt that you use food for comfort, Guilt that you use food for celebration. Guilt that your points or your calories were too high. Guilt is not a positive emotion. You know, feel guilt or any of these emotions long enough, and that can beat a person up to the point of quitting. Shame is a pretty common one, too. You know, people are ashamed of themselves, of their behaviors. You know, they can't believe they let a hundred million years of evolution that's created hormones in their body telling them what to eat actually influence what they're eating. You know, evolution is a pretty powerful force. We don't win that fight, but yet we are taught we are supposed to on a regular basis. Failure, I mean, failure is the overarching feeling. When people are unable to commit to all those things, they are unable to be perpetually hungry, for instance, they feel like failures. It's difficult to build a lifetime of change on feeling like a failure. That can lead to depression. I mean, real depression. So, I will tell people that depression is something that precludes weight loss. That you cannot, in a, it is a contraindication. You should not be undertaking a real weight loss effort if depression is such that it's truly affecting your life, your ability to concentrate, plan, coordinate. You know, it's, it's like having a sprained ankle and really wanting to go for a run. It doesn't matter how the ankle got sprained, it's probably not going to be a good outcome. And so depression becomes a, a vicious cycle because people get depressed about their abilities to follow through and that makes it more difficult to follow through. That leads to despair. Where people feel that it's impossible. There's no way. Either the loss that they're aiming for is too big and we're going to come to that, or just whatever they're trying to do, there's just no way they are going to be able to do that. Despair is not very useful. Some people binge. So binge eating is a very common disorder, more common than a lot of people think. There's different kinds of binge eating. This was actually a, a, a teenage girl who, she plans her binges. And some people plan them and some people it just happens. And this girl bought all of this with her family at a supermarket. And then she has a blog where she posted how she was going to eat all of this. Binging is a real common thing on highly restrictive diets. And that leads to weight cycling for many people. I mean, again, Oprah's the, the perfect example of this sort of pattern. You know, whether it was 
you know, going on an all-liquid diet, and I think she had a macrobiotic vegan diet, and there was this trainer who kicked her butt quite a lot and, and made her eat clean, and I think she's amazing now. It's been a long time since I've seen her cycle, which is wonderful, and I'm thrilled for her, but this was not a healthy thing in her life. Um, all of these efforts at weight cycling, and I do think it was this sort of repeated feeling of being a failure that led an incredibly intelligent person with literally the resources of almost God to choose to undertake these recurrent efforts of traumatic diet. And so underlying all of it is sort of the unicorn meat. This looks pretty real, right? This is a, a myth. It doesn't exist. But I actually have a can of this. That's not my can. But um, I bought a can to scare my kids. Um, but uh, the mythology that's out there, and this is, this is the title of the talk, there are a lot of myths about weight management. And it's these myths that fuel this desire to undertake all of those seven deadly sins of diet. And we talked a little bit about this one. The first one is willpower. You know, there's this myth that we should have unending, inordinate amounts of willpower. And it's such a pervasive thing. I mean, you read newspaper editorials. You read or you watch TV shows, articles, editorials, and not just from, you know, tabloid stuff, but from mainstream news, from mainstream media, from public health in some cases, from doctors, where the message that we are constantly being told is that if you want it badly enough, you'll make it happen, and if you don't make it happen, you don't want it badly enough. That's nonsense. You know, there is nothing in many cases that people want more badly than this. It's not a matter of desire. If desire or shame or guilt was sufficient to cause people to sustain a weight loss, the world would be very, very thin because those are the things that people struggling with weight have no shortage of. And if a person who's struggling with their weight happens to not feel those things, someone's going to tell them that they should, which is insane. Um, and so, again, going to the Biggest Loser TV show, because I do pick on it quite a lot, they have these ridiculous challenges. Again, 10 million people watched the show including the parents last year because it was this family show last year. And they have these ridiculous challenges where they put starving people in a room with their favorite foods, and then they say, you're not allowed to eat, right? And then we, on, we at home, you know, with our bags of tape chips, because we've all got those while we're watching, <laughs> we at home look at this lady's face and think, oh, yes. My face would look like that if I was starving and there was a burrito I wasn't allowed to eat in front of me. I mean, this notion that willpower is going to see them through, that for the rest of their lives, when they are hungry, they will be unable to partake of the table, is a real myth in weight management. Scale. So for those who can't read it, it says, don't step on it, and it makes you cry. Um, so scales. What do scales measure? Well, scales measure the gravitational pull of the earth, on your body at a particular instant in time. What scales do not measure, they cannot measure, is if you are happy, if you should have self-esteem, if you are healthy. Health is not dictated by the number on a scale. I know lots of unhealthy skinny people, and I know lots of people with weight to lose who live healthier lives than I do. Scales do not measure anything other than weight. 
Yet again, in part because of things like The Biggest Loser, where they have this massive scale and this, all this pomp and circumstance where they basically teach the world that scales are happiness, that if you go down, you're happy, if you go up, you're sad, um, or you're a failure, which is not useful. More Biggest Losers, Jillian Michaels again, you did it, it was awful, it was hell, but you did it. That suffering is going to get you where you want to go. That's a myth, too. We don't suffer well in perpetuity for things we don't have to suffer for. It's just the species. It's not individual. It's not a lack of, of, of willpower. It's not a lack of desire. It's that if we don't have to suffer, we tend to try to avoid suffering. I mean, our whole lives, our whole existences, in a sense, to some degree, are us seeking out convenience and ease, you know, from labor-saving devices that we buy for ourselves that get us very excited to... You know, it's a constant thing. And so this notion, this myth, that suffering is going to get somebody there is problematic. Now, this is not an Ottawa public health thing, but this is an Ottawa bus. I was at a red light, so don't feel angry at me for pulling out my cell phone. And I was sitting at this red light, and thank God I wasn't drinking coffee, because I absolutely would have spit it out onto my dashboard. Because I saw this bus, and I saw this sign, and I'll make it bigger, and then I'll read it to you. It says, reason number 45 for biking to work. Less sit, more whip. The myth here is that we can outrun our forks. People can't outrun their forks. Suggesting that if we exercise more, we will earn more food, we will earn more calories, that there is a balance between the energy in and energy out of our lives, it is a myth. 80% of the weight that a person has that's modifiable is modifiable on the basis of dietary choices. Maybe 20% fitness. In the real world, there was this great study. There's about 300 individuals, men and women. And they were assigned to do exercise. Lots of it. Supervised. This was a really good study. For a year. And they were all instructed explicitly, do not change your diets. This isn't a diet study. This is a, it was actually part of a cancer arm. And it was, don't change your diets. I want you guys to exercise. Amazingly, the men, on average, for a year, exercise 6.16 hours a week. The women, for a year, and I would love to know how they've got people exercising this much. And adherence was over 90%. The women, on average, exercise 4.9 hours a week for a year. Want to know what happened at the end of the year? They did lose weight. The men, exercising an average of over 6 hours a week, 316 minutes a week, double our recommendations from uh, Canada and all that stuff, they lost 3.5 pounds in a year. The women... 4.9 hours a week of exercise, they lost 2.6 pounds. It was actually, and this is not great stats, but it really was a linear relationship. Basically, for every 91 and a half hours of exercise, these people lost one pound. That is not what this bus poster is teaching people who are sitting behind it in their cars. And again, this is a constant message. The food industry has embraced this message wholeheartedly because if the food industry can say it's about balance, well, then it's not about their crappy products. And so, you know, 
Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, everybody's got their balanced active living, balanced healthy living, balanced healthy life. They've all got different taglines for this. Um, but it just simply isn't true in the real world. Not because mathematically it's not true. So 91 and a half hours of exercise actually burns a boatload of calories, far more calories than one pound worth. But it's that whole, we actually live on a real world place, a planet, a real life existence, not a television show, and not someone's ivory tower lab, the real world, where again, we regularly eat because we exercise. In part because we're told that's what we're supposed to do. And I have it on good authority that this was not a City of Ottawa Public Health approved program, and I believe there was some concern once it was pointed out. Now, more real-world studies, just to give you a little bit more of a sense of the struggle in terms of exercise and weight management. The Nurses' Health Study is one of the longest-running sort of nutritional epidemiologic trials in the world. And the Nurses' Health Study followed 34,000 women for 13 years looking at the impact of exercise on their weights. Of the 34,000 women, 13% did not gain. And those 13%, on average, began the study at a healthy body weight and exercised on average an hour a day. Of the 34,000 women, who began the study already, so to speak, overweight, there was no amount of exercise that could be correlated with a lack of gain. They all gained. Even the people exercising huge amounts. Again, it's not mathematical. This is the real world. The real world is very different than what a piece of paper might say you should or could be losing with exercise. Cheat days. Anybody in this room ever been on a program that involved cheat days? I'm sure the answer is yes, I can't see it all. Um, cheat days, or eat days, um, make it worth it. You know, these are a reality of a lot of people's weight loss programs. Now, the myth of cheat days is that the rest of the week is going to average them out. Sometimes it might be true, but I just want to give you one example of why this might be challenging again in the real world. This is a menu from the cake. And there's three choices for dessert on this menu. There's carrot cake, chocolate cake, and Billy Minor pie. And I would be willing to wager that there are a lot of folks out there who order the carrot cake because it has the word carrot in it. <laughs> Thinking, well you know what? I, I don't want to get the chocolate cake. I mean, layer upon layer of dark, moist chocolate cake with a silky smooth chocolate filling and served with vanilla ice cream and raspberry puree. Ooh, that sounds bad. But, subtly spiced and filled with grated carrots, sweet crushed pineapple and walnuts covered with cream cheese? Well, that's a little bit healthier. I'm going to order that. And it's my cheat day. And I already had my steak and my loaded baked potato and my appetizer, and it's been a good night, I had a couple glasses of wine, I mean, it's already a pretty good night, but now it's dessert time. Anybody who knows the answer, because they've read my blog or my book, can't answer, but anybody who doesn't know the answer, anybody want to guess how many calories this thing is, the, the carrot cake? 1,500? I primed you for a big number. You're still too low. 
That's it, by the way. Thank God for people on the internet who take pictures of their food and post them. Um, I, I don't like carrot cake, so it wasn't me who bought it. But So that is a piece of the cake carrot cake. And this is their own nutritional breakdown for the carrot cake. For those who can't see, it's 2,344 calories. That's as many calories as a person burns in a daytime. And this is the end of the cheap meal. Forget about cheap day, this is just a cheap meal. And this person who had this cheap meal might have put down 5,000 calories easy and you can kiss the rest of the week goodbye. The myth that you can just blindly eat something on a cheap day, it's a common one, but it's problematic. Um, I remember I, when, I, when I wrote the blog post about this, I called it the world's most dangerous piece of cake. And uh, I had a chemist who wrote me trying to comprehend how they even managed to dissolve that much sugar into it. Um, because it really was a very large number. And so the last, maybe I'm not the last, I, I kind of forget, the, the, the myth that food should be fuel only or that it could be fuel only. We've touched on that, talking about comfort, talking about celebration. Food is not just fuel. That's why there are literally locks for your Ben and Jerry's, if you want, to protect from your roommate or your loved one from getting into your stash. I will give you a pro tip, though. If you do ever come across one of these, a sharp knife right there works just fine. So, should you ever come across one, you know how to get into the Ben and Jerry's euphoria lock. But again, people use food for comfort because it's comforting. It's part of the human condition. So too is using food for celebration. And so that is a really important thing to not forget. We need to continue to be able to use food like normal people if we expect to continue living with a particular lifestyle. And the other myth is that there will be one thing to blame. So today, let's blame obesity on um, and spin the wheel. And we've seen that, right? We've seen that with the low-fat 90s. We're seeing that now with sugar. Um, there's a lot of things people want to blame. Some will blame gluten. Some will blame dairy and grains. And blame, there's nothing, there's no shortage of blame. There is no easy solution. You know, what matters to one person's struggle is not important to another person's struggle. Go figure. I mean, there's billions of people on the planet. We all do things slightly differently. We have different issues in our lives, and there is no one culprit. If there was one culprit, we'd all be fine. Um, this is the problem or the consequence of huge changes in our environment. I don't believe that people have changed dramatically. I don't think there's been an epidemic loss of willpower over the course of the past 60 years where we've seen obesity rates rise. You know, and some people, they'll hear me say that, I'll be like, no, no, it is willpower. I'm like, what about the three-year-olds? Like, literally three-year-olds. Are they less willful than the three-year-olds of the 1950s? Their obesity rates have tripled. I don't think they're less willful. It's not about that. And so blaming it on one thing's a problem. It's also a problem to suggest that there are magic cures. Uh, Dr. Oz, who, again, I don't know in person, but certainly I feel is rather loathsome. Um, he, uh, he, this is his actual website. And this was his actual show. His show was entitled 
miracle fat burner in a bottle. This is raspberry ketones, if you don't remember. If you want to burn fat all over your body, try this raspberry ketone supplement. Learn how it works to burn fat, helping you break through a weight loss plateau. And it's all bullshit. I mean, you know, this is not something that has any clinical backing. The studies that were done, and there's like two, were done on mice having ridiculously large quantities of raspberry ketones, showing a theoretical impact, but just nothing in people. And again, if there were weight loss in bottles, would I be here? Would you guys be here? Not a chance. Weight loss is not found in bottles, and there's more Dr. Oz bottles. Uh, this is Enrico Suave pose, but last night Dr. Oz spoke about green coffee beans and how they can help you lose weight. Last night he did this, and the next day green coffee beans took off. If there was a way to know what he was going to sell next, and you could buy futures in green coffee beans, oh, that'd be a good way to go. Now, this is an important, and I think it's the last myth of mine, and that is that there are ideal weights. This is uh, actually before ideal weights, which were developed by the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. There was something called desirable body weights, also developed by the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. And uh, these are old ones. That they, they've, they're really challenging, actually. I don't have a desirable weight. Um, so I'm 5'8", and I've got a small frame, and I'm you know, closing in on 20 pounds heavier than this says I'm supposed to be. Um, this notion that everybody of a certain height should weigh a certain amount is a really weird one. And I'll use an example. Well, body mass index sort of is the next thing that we've come to. But this is the qualifying time for the Boston Marathon for 2014. And uh, I fall into this category, the 40 to 44. It says that I should be able, or if I want to run the Boston Marathon, I should run it in 3 hours and 15 minutes. Now, let's say I decided that that was what I wanted to do. I can run. Um, I'm intensely slow. I'm not a good runner. I've never been a good runner. But let's say I got it in my head that if I wanted to run, if I wanted to be a runner, and I wanted to run a marathon, a really you know, significant thing, that success would be getting this time. This is the good time. This is the time I'm supposed to strive for, because this is the qualifying time for Boston, and that's the best, right? Going to Boston is the best. And let's say that that was my plan, and so what I did was I spent a year of my life training. And I hated it. Meaning that I trained so much that my wife left me because I spent time on weekends doing long runs instead of helping caring for three kids. I neglected my practice. I ate crappy food. I hurt all the time. Spent thousands of dollars on physio over the course of the year. But at the end of the year, I ran the flattest course there was and I eked in at three hours and 14 minutes. I qualify. Now, the way it works is you qualify, and then it's the next year that you run Boston, assuming you get in through the lottery. So I got in through the lottery, I qualified, and the next year comes around. I go for my run, I finish, but now I'm finishing at about 340. My natural pace, if I were to run a marathon, my bet would be, and I'm not done one, but my bet would be about between four and a half and five hours. So 340 is still pretty good for me. Um, but it's certainly not as fast as it was, and maybe I convinced myself, well, you know, it was Boston, I didn't have a good sleep last night, I was anxious. 
But the reason I was slower is because there's no way in hell I'm going to keep up with that level of training once I get there if getting there was a misery in the first place. Similarly, if I decided that I was going to do this, and again, I spent that misery-inducing year, my wife left me, I had to go back to my practice, and I went to run Boston, and I, ran, I went to run the qualifier, and ran the qualifier in 345, I'd probably quit running. You know, if I spent that whole year and all that awfulness, and I didn't get where I wanted to go, well, why would I keep running in the first place? The goal was Boston. The analogy of weight management is pretty clear, I think. Seems like we're taught, there's this myth, that everybody who tries to lose weight should be able to qualify for the Boston Marathon weight loss. It doesn't work that way. My wife's a naturally fast runner. She'll qualify for Boston one day. I have no doubt. There's no amount of training that would get me there in a natural, normal way. I could suffer my way there, maybe. I'm not even sure I could do that. Um, but certainly there's no natural way for me to get there. Suggesting that everybody of the same height should strive to weigh the same. Putting aside the obvious, you know, muscles weigh more and different sexes and ages and ethnicities, put all that aside, it still suggests that everybody's got the exact same deck of cards to play with. We don't have the same deck of cards to play with. Right? So there are things that affect our weight that we can't control. Genes, there's lots of genes involved in weight management, can't change any of them. Uh, medical problems, there's medical problems that can affect weight directly and sometimes indirectly through drugs, and there's the real life stuff. Caregiver requirements, socioeconomic stress, job responsibilities, and the fact that, again, yes, we should be able to use food like normal human beings, sometimes for comfort, sometimes for celebration. Suggesting that we all have the same deck of cards is a really unwise thing to do, and yet we are constantly told you're not healthy unless your weight is this much. And again, scales do not, cannot, will not measure health. And so, if a person feels like they should be able to walk down this aisle hungry, that they shouldn't be able to celebrate with food, that they have bottomless amounts of willpower, they can't use food for comfort, they're going to burn it off, they're going to be perfectly perfect, they're going to love their thinness so much they will never eat again, well, I think that's what ties a lot of failures together. I don't talk about that in my office. So I talk about something else. It's interesting, I started my office in 2004 here in Ottawa. In 2004, I was much more traditional in the sense that I did what I was taught to do in the extracurricular medical teaching, which was I did set a number goal with patients. You know, patients would come in and we'd say, okay, we're going to aim for the first five or the first 10%, then we'll reset the goal. We measured body fat percentage, we talked about weight a lot more. I realized pretty quickly it was pretty stupid to do that. Because again, we don't have control over everything, and this is the real world, not television. And so I started using something that I called best weight. Not ideal weight, not body mass indices, best weight. A person's best weight is whatever weight they reach when they're living the happiest and healthiest life they can honestly enjoy. Of course there's compromises. You can't have the eat as much as you want whenever you want without thinking about a weight loss program. That would be a real good program. Um, but that program does not exist. So of course there's compromises, but you need to like your life. And so the healthiest life that I can live will be different than the healthiest life that somebody else can live, and so on and so forth. But that is a non-statistical way to think about weight management, and it's the way we think about everything in life, right? And to put it differently, if a person can't happily eat less, they're not going to eat less. 
Not long term. Now there's a lot of variables that might impact on how can you tweak things so that you don't need to eat as much to be happy. But ultimately there will be a point where a person literally cannot happily eat any less. And similarly there will be a point where they cannot happily exercise anymore. If you can't happily eat less, you won't. And if you can't happily exercise more, you won't. That's okay. You know, whatever weight they are at that point, it's a good thing. Because trying to do better than that, doing better than your best, well, now we get into the merely tolerable lives. Lives that are merely tolerable aren't long-lasting. I mean, I imagine almost everybody in this room has done at least one merely tolerable diet. Didn't last. It's not good enough. Food's too important. Life's too short. It's too much of a pleasure, too. You know, I adore my family. I've got a great job. From time to time, all those things let me down, but give me some Doritos, it never lets me down, right? Like, <laughs> food is a constant pleasure when we need it. And so not having that in a person's life is a challenge. And so if you lose weight through suffering, weight that flaws through suffering it tends to come back. And again, that has been the past hundred or more years of dieting. It's teaching people to suffer in very specific regimented ways. And I guess it really makes me always ask, you know, everything in our lives, we're pretty comfy with accepting our best efforts. We might be disappointed. I think about school. You know, I think about my kids and their studies at school, and my kids try hard. They don't always get great grades. My, my oldest is 10, and right now she's working on a French project. She's not working very hard. Um, I don't think it's going to go very well. But she's got to learn that there are consequences to not working very hard. But ultimately, though, if she was trying her very best, she didn't get a good grade, you know I'd be telling her, listen, you did your best, that's all that matters. And I agree with that statement. It really is all that matters in everything in our lives. We're not going to be perfect in anything. Why should we be perfect at this? And so reality, just it's not reality television. And I guess we've been spoon-fed this nonsense that reality television, or just that full concept of reality television, what's sort of embodied in that awful show, is the way we are supposed to live our lives if we want to manage our weight. If you don't like the life you're living, you're not going to keep living that way. And it comes right down to that. And so there's a lot of different diets out there. I actually don't subscribe to one right way to go. I think that's a mistake too. It probably should be in there somewhere if I read another book or an update. But there is no one right way. There's lots of different ways to go. People have lost weight every which way. There's something called the National Weight Control Registry that I write about a fair bit. They're a group of folks who on average have lost uh, over 67 pounds and kept that weight off for over five and a half years. They are good at what they do. They lost weight all sorts of different ways. And so it's finding something that works for you, that you enjoy. That's what matters long term. That's the ultimate message. You know, remember that graph I showed you, the lady's real weight loss, who lost 80 odd pounds, but yet spent a year bouncing around that same number. You just keep pressing on. There's nothing more a person can do. It's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. And letting go of some of the angst and the anxiety and the stress of trying to be perfect at weight management, and maybe you'll find something that you can do imperfectly, but forever. Thank you very much.
questions, um, and uh, so I'm happy to entertain questions if there are some. Uh, I can sort of see when I do this, and I think they're going to change the lights in a minute. There we go. Um, are there questions? Yes, sir. So children, so we actually do have a program. And sorry, I'll repeat the question in case I let the lady hear it. The question is, do you have success with young children? So uh, starting uh, close to a year ago, or a year and a bit ago, we began a Ministry of Health funded program. So it is a program that's fully funded by the Ministry of Health. There's no cost uh, to parents. And our program is designed to work with kids, in a sense, and I'll explain what I mean in a minute, between the ages of 6 and 12 whose weights are a struggle. I say, in a sense, kids, because we don't see the kids. We don't see the kids for a few reasons. Um, one, I think kids in those age brackets are passengers in life. They are not drivers yet. And I'm not sure that there's a lot of value in lecturing a passenger when, in fact, I've got the drivers in front of me who are the parents. Now, every parent who's come to see me loves their kids much as I love mine, and every parent's trying as hard as they can. It's just that this world is really not intuitive for weight management. And so studies on programs that exclude the kids, like ours, um, have shown that the outcomes are just as good as the programs that include the kids. And so I worry if we included the kids, who are passengers, we put them at risk. We put them at risk of body image disturbances. No matter how gently we talk about things, these are little ears. These aren't fully grown, insightful adults. We put them at risk for impaired relationship with food, um, with self-esteem questions. And I'll tell you, too, there is no guarantee. So some of the kids in our program are losing weight. Some of the kids have stopped gaining, so they're going to grow into their weights better. Some of the kids are gaining more slowly, but some of the kids we're not touching, and that's normal. This is a service and not a product. Parenting is, you know, role model, guide, support, and then hope for the best. And because there's that hope for the best piece, and we can't guarantee outcomes, the last thing I would want is to get a kid involved in a program for a year, who's between the ages of 6 and 12, and then have them feel like failures. And so the answer is yes, you know, absolutely. But it's the family that has to change. It's not the kid. And again, I want to reiterate that it's not that families are trying to do wrong by their kids, and they're not trying, families love their kids, it's just that this is a complicated thing, more complicated than the TV and the media let us on to believe. Yes, ma'am. So the, I, I think I know where you're going. So the question is, what about loose skin and when you lose weight? So there, there is no lotion or potion, despite I'm sure what Dr. Oz might tell you on one show somewhere. Um, there just isn't. So there's, there's nothing that a person can do to prevent that from happening. The older we are, the more likely it is because we lose the elasticity in our skin. Uh, women who are postmenopausal is for sure it will have an impact too. Um, the only person who can absolutely take care of that skin for you is a surgeon and an ain't cheap. Um, I usually recommend that a person be weight stable for at least six months, if not a year or more, before they consider ever having this sort of a surgery. These surgeries aren't just, you know, for vanity reasons. People who've struggled with large amounts of weight loss, it's a very dramatic thing. 
and it can get lead to skin infections and real problems with quality of life. I think that we do a disservice by not covering that in people who've demonstrated the ability to keep their weight off long term. But uh, I don't see that getting covered anytime soon. Uh, some people think exercise is going to make a big difference. It'll tighten up everything under the skin, um, but you'll still be left with the skin. So the, the question was, why doesn't OHIP pay for weight management? Basically, right? So OHIP does pay for some weight management, so OHIP does cover bariatric surgeries. Um, there's a very long wait list, and more people who are wanting of the surgery than there currently is uh, supply. Um, but I think the main reason is that there's no gold standard for treatment. And so, you know, OHIP, so for instance, if there's a medication out there, but you can't guarantee it's going to work for a certain percentage of people. They can't start, you know, covering it or recommending it be covered, and they can't have procedures that don't have demonstrable and predictable outcomes. And because there's no gold standard of treatment, uh, it's a it's a real challenge. Now, oh, it does pay for a few things. So at the, the Ottawa Hospital, I believe they have a few funded spots for something called an Optifast program, and also there's a 12-week behavioral program. I'm not exactly sure how many spots there are, but OHIP is doing as a pilot project some work there. I don't see that getting bigger in terms of provision of care, um, for the simple reason is that there's too many people who would need it. I say that not callously, it's just that the cost of providing OHIP weight management programs to a population where at least 30 to 50 percent of people would be theoretically a, a, able to go would be a challenge to healthcare dollars. Uh, so it's not going to happen anytime soon. But again, being overweight, isn't that causing more diseases? So, so the question is, wouldn't this be a good idea? It would be if we could guarantee a program would cause weight loss. We just can't do that. Or sustain weight loss. We could always guarantee the losing. Losing is the easy part, right? You lose through suffering. Uh, but the keeping it off part is the challenging part. And so until we have a program that is reproducible regardless of who's providing that program, that leads to sustained weight loss in a very large percentage of people, um, the likelihood of there being an OHIP funded program is low. I'm just going to go, keep going on. So, yes sir. So how do you distinguish between uh, people who fail at diet uh, or weight loss programs and then getting depressed from people who have, let's say, dysthymia and then overeating so the question was, how do you distinguish between someone whose depression is caused by their weight or failure with weight management than someone who might have a generic depression consequent to just depression? Is that a... Uh, you know, You know, so I'll tell you that a very large percentage of people that I meet who are struggling both with mood and with weight will suggest or feel that their mood is indirect consequent to their weight or their struggle with a diet or whatever. It may be true, it may not be true. Um, regardless of how a person's ankle got sprained, they're not going to be wise to undertake a running program at that time. And so even if it is caused by the weight or a consequence of a diet failure, it's important to address the mood first and then address the weight. But I'll also say that people often put a lot of stock in the weight loss basket, you know, expecting a lot of things to change. Their relationships will change. They'll get more intimacy. They'll meet somebody. 
They'll get a promotion. They'll be more confident. Their depression will get better. Their knee will start, stop hurting. They won't need their drugs anymore. Their diabetes will improve. It doesn't always happen. There's skinny people with all those problems too. Um, so, you know, I, I, the only guarantee with weight management or weight loss that's successful is smaller size clothing. Um, everything else is a bonus. You know, oftentimes, yes, there is a relationship. And yes, we see those things get better. But counting on it is risky too. If a person's counting on those improvements and they don't happen, um, that can lead people to quit too. Yes, sir. Okay, so the question is, are fat-burning zones real on, on, those, on the, the thing? I'd say, first of all, no, they're probably not real. Um, but more important, they don't matter. So exercise, your goal in exercise, the right one, the best one, is the exercise you like enough to keep doing. It doesn't matter what it is. And the right amount is as much as you can enjoy. And that will differ day by day. It will differ situation by situation. And getting too caught up in the perfect um, is a problem. And then again, from a, from a weight perspective, you know, if you've got a, it, it, how would I put it? If you ask me, for my health, what is the single most important thing for me to do? Exercise or eat healthy. I'm only going to do one of them. What should I do? I'll say exercise for your health. If you ask me for my weight, what is the single most important thing for me to do to make me lose weight or keep my weight off? Exercise or eat healthy and make you know, better food choices and cook and all that sort of stuff. It's this one. So if it's a weight-related question, and it might be because if it's fat-burning zones, um, better off to go for a walk after you've stayed home and prepped your dinner from fresh whole ingredients than it is to go to the gym and get on one of those machines and go like this for an hour in front of a TV and then come home and not have time to make dinner. I think we'll take a couple more. And there's a gentleman over there. Uh, I think coming to uh, ideas and myth number four, uh, saying that drugs, we should not uh, go into the idea of eliminating some specific food from uh, someone's diet. Yes. And uh, it looks like again, I'm more and more um, voices from uh, medical scientists saying that we actually going in general. Sure. Sure, so there, I'll repeat the question. Yeah, so I'll summarize it too. I think the question is, is wheat belly guy right? Um, you know, and uh, I would say no. So wheat belly, in case you aren't familiar, is uh, the name of the book written by a guy named Dr. William Davis. He's a cardiologist. And he basically tells everybody, oh, it doesn't really matter what medical problem you have. If you stop weed, it will cure your medical problem. Literally, like so. Um, I, I had an interview with with uh, Cheryl, uh, with with I think it was Sharon Kirkie who wrote this article, and uh, she was she writes for the for the National Post. She was interviewing him uh, after interviewing me, and she said, "What question would you ask him?" And so, tongue in cheek, I said, well, "I'd ask him, is there anything that doesn't make better?" Because you know, I, I I've seen him talking. It would seem like the answer is no. And so she asked him the question, and he actually said 80% of all medical issues are attributable to wheat. Now, the actual scientific evidence is not there to support that at all. Um, 
You know, looking at data on whole grain consumption, it's actually been shown to be protective for lots of medical problems. I have zero dispute with Dr. Davis in saying that society eats way too many refined carbohydrates and cutting those out of our lives and reducing them to refined sugars, the white stuff, the sort of pre-chewed foods we all eat regularly. Um, that stuff we would stand to, to reduce, but um, I would not worry much. I eat them, I feed them to my family. Now, on the other hand, if you cut them out, and you like your life with them gone, and you lose weight as a consequence, don't bring them back. The key there, though, is liking your life. So low-carb diets have been around for an awfully long time, since the 1800s at least, if not sooner. And uh, for many people, they work, and they work because when you cut carbs out of your life, and you just regularly eat, no counting calories, no nothing, um, you're not as hungry. You're not as hungry because you end up eating a huge amount more protein, protein's more filling, um, and so, when you're not as hungry, you don't eat as much, you lose weight, and that's a good thing. Um, the problem is, is that most people aren't willing to live low-carb lives forever. I bet you there are plenty of people in this audience who've been on low-carb diets, lost weight, but just didn't want to live like that forever, and that's okay. Um, so, I'm not knocking it as risky, but I don't think it's a panacea. Maybe it's time for one more. Yep, so it's a great question. The question was, what, how, how do you work with somebody who has binge eating disorder, but who developed it through dieting? And that does happen. So one of the most common triggers for binge eating disorder is highly restrictive diets. And so people go on all sorts of cookie programs, not because they're cookie people, but because the programs are allowed to advertise themselves very seductively. There's no regulation in this area whatsoever, and there should be. And promises are made that sound amazing, and people go on these programs. They do lose weight really rapidly, but oftentimes binging is a consequence. Um, the answer for sure is that you can't go on a highly restrictive diet. It's going to just lead to more binging. In our office, we'll usually say that the minimum number, minimum number of calories someone with binge eating disorder should be having is at least 1,600, uh, but probably more in some cases. It depends on the person. But I'd rather a person be totally in control of food and choices, not have to fight the demoralizing despair and guilt associated with binge eating disorder, and not lose as much weight, than to try to go on another restrictive diet and just make this a, a long-term cycle. It's no fair, um, but definitely the folks who struggle with binging generally need to eat more so they don't risk further binging. I want to thank you all very much. I will be around if anybody wants to buy a book. I'll happy to sign them. And uh, thank you for your attention.